Welcome to a special edition of Transit Unplugged. I'm Paul Comfort, your host, and this is our quarterly innovation show, where four times a year we bring you outstanding leaders in their field who will talk about innovations in the area of public transportation. And today is no exception. We have as our guest Robert Puentes. Robert is president and CEO of the Eno Center for Transportation. They're an independent nonprofit convener of ideas. This group has been in action for nearly a century, and they provide government and industry leaders with timely research and pragmatic fact-based voices on policy issues. They publish rigorous, objective analysis of critical and emerging issues facing the transportation arena. And we'll hear from the president of the group today, Robert, as I visited him in Washington, D.C. at his offices recently. We talked about all the latest and greatest things happening in the Eno Center for Transportation, but also a look forward into congestion pricing coming to the U.S., into mobility as a service, into autonomous vehicles and their usage and public transportation and public transit infrastructure and what's happening there around the country. It's a great in-depth look from one of the clear leaders, thought leaders of our industry today on this special quarterly edition of Transit Unplugged. What does it mean to be a successful public transit agency? What are you doing to lead the way? It's time to learn from the top transit professionals in North America. This is Transit Unplugged with your host, Paul Comfort. Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort, and today I'm excited to bring you another one of our special quarterly innovations programs. And today on our podcast, I'm very pleased to have as our guest, Robert Puentes, who's president and CEO of the Eno Center for Transportation. Rob, thanks for having us. Thanks for having me do this. In, in your office on a beautiful day in Washington, D.C. today. And these are great offices, by the way. Thanks. I was in your other offices about a year ago, and you moved. Do you like it here? Sure, right down here on K Street, perfectly yeah. centrally located, there bus lines, go. transit lines. It's great. It's a beautiful day, too, here. Rob and I have been friends for probably a year or two. And um, so tell me a little about yourself. How long have you been in this role? And tell me about Eno Center for Transportation and what you all do. Sure. I've been here for a little more than three years. I spent 15 years at the Brookings Institution, another think tank here in Washington, standing up the infrastructure initiative over there. Infrastructure, obviously, has as much to do with public policy as any set of things out there now. So I came over here to have the chance to run an organization and to run an organization, frankly, as prestigious as Eno. I'd known about Eno for a very long time. I didn't know some of the details, but uh, it's been a great been a great change. The Eno Center for Transportation is a 100-year-old think tank. It was started by Mr. William P. Eno. People think it's an acronym. It's not. It's actually his last name. <laughs> it's his last name, yeah. It's like Brian Eno. Mr. Eno was the world's first traffic engineer. He was living up in Manhattan by the turn of the century, and he saw that horses and trolleys and pedestrians were starting to interact with these new four-wheeled motorized vehicles and saw the chaos that was ensuing and set out to set out the first rules of the road. We drive on the right. He invented the stop sign. He invented the roundabout. Wow. And that was kind of his legacy. So, I know about that. Yeah, he did it all across the United States and all across the world. So that's, okay. that's Mr. Eno's legacy. He endowed this foundation about 100 years ago to work on all kind of aspects of transportation. So a very big and broad remit for the organization. And today we're the only think tank in the country, but possibly in the world, who focuses on all modes of transportation. We do everything from aviation to electric scooters and pedestrians and everything in between. Um, we do it with the, um, the federal, state, local governments, and the nonprofit sector. We're based here in D.C., so we do things, obviously, with, with federal Washington, but with everything else as well. 
and we do it with the public and the private and the nonprofit sectors. So we cover the whole gamut. We obviously don't all do all that at the same time. We're only 12 people here in our office in Washington, um, but we have networks of people all across the country, increasingly all across the world with whom we work. So partnerships, relationships, collaboration is really in the DNA of this organization, and we're going to continue to do that for years to come. That's great. So give me some examples of the work you're doing now. I know you have a regular e-newsletter and you you host functions and kind of walk us through some of what it looks like day to day. There's three big parts of what we do here at Eno. One is this communications and outreach function. Jeff Davis writes Eno Transportation Weekly, which people call it a newsletter. It's more like a, a journal. It, uh, it's really yes. indispensable reading for anybody in transportation. And we're glad that Jeff is here doing that. But because we want to get all of our information and everything out there, we have a major communications function, just trying to make sure that people are consuming the work that we produce here and the work that our partners and, and other folks consume. We have a policy shop that works on all kinds of different policy issues right now. We're doing everything from drones to autonomous vehicles to transit trends and and everything in between. And we have a professional development program where we run classes right now just in public transit. But in years past, we've done it in aviation and, and some other modes, trying to train transit professionals all up and down the career chain. So we have a leadership development conference, which occurs every spring, where we bring in 25 graduate students to be immersed in transportation. We run a transit manager I class. Think I spoke at that one last year. I'm sure you did. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. that. It's, um, it's a wonderful, wonderful class. And those kids go on to do amazing things. Yeah. They stay connected to us. The transit manager class we run every year, several different times. And we have a transit senior executive program. And so working with groups like APTA and NTI, you're know, trying to figure out where, where all this stuff fits in in that career ladder has been really fruitful for us as well. That's phenomenal. So if someone wants to get connected with Eno or, or is interested in one of these classes or wants to sign up for your regular communications, where do they go? Best way is on our website, on www.enotrans.org. We have regular newsletters that go out in addition to Eno Transportation Weekly, regular social media that goes out. But the, the website's the best way to sign up for our email list. Everything you know is on there. Great. Well, thank you. So let's just dive right into some of the topics that we think are kind of consuming the minds and the, and the research that you're doing here at Eno. One of the topics you mentioned that is a very popular topic of discussion across America is autonomous vehicles. And I know you've done a lot of writing and thinking about that. First off, let's just describe what's happening right now. In your mind, what's happening in America right now when it comes to autonomous vehicles, not only for public transportation, but just in general? Sure. Yeah, quite a bit. And I think that in some days I feel like we could do nothing but work on autonomous vehicles. The demand is so high out there. A lot of money going into it, too, from the private sector. A lot of money and a lot of confusion, I think, too, from particularly from cities and metro areas across the country who are trying to wrestle with what they think is something that's going to change their places for the worse, right? So... Um, I, the, the demand, I think, is and the conversation is changing. This time last year, it was very, very prominent. It was very hot, particularly here in federal Washington, where they were, there was legislation that was moving through. And so there's a lot of attention to it. It seems to have waned a little bit. Okay. I think that's for, for obvious reasons. One is that the legislation didn't go anywhere. And so the industry is trying to retrench and figure out, well, what do we do now? That the bill didn't go through for lots of different reasons. Um, but what do they? What is the federal ask right now? We obviously don't want to have 50 different policies from different states or hundreds, if you include the localities, right? That yeah. are 
uh, that is setting out the rules and regs. Las Vegas, over, Phoenix, yeah. Sure, it can yeah. be untenable, especially yeah. for the manufacturers. So you do want to have the federal government to be present and to have something that is more directive for, for places so they know what to do. There's also been a pullback, I think, a little bit, because safety is obviously a paramount concern to everybody. And some high-profile wrecks and, and accidents have forced that conversation, as it should. So I think the companies are starting to temper their expectations a little bit, slowing down their optimism a little and recognizing that this is hard. And in a lot of cases with transportation, we say, well, the tech is there now. It's the institutional and the political stuff we have to work on. I don't think we're quite there yet on the tech, especially when we think about level five, fully autonomous vehicles roaming around cities. There's too many obstacles in the way, quite literally, but there's too many obstacles to the technology that we haven't quite nailed yet. So the companies, I think, smartly are trying to make sure that they've nailed that piece of it. Um, And then it gets into this whole scenario of this, you know, the, the heaven and hell scenario in cities. Is it going to free up uh, public infrastructure so that uh, that vehicles can move closer together and um, we're not going to need to build new roads because I think it's going to run so efficiently and everything is going to be fantastic? Or is it going to be we're going to have ghost cars riding around, um, driving up vehicle miles traveled, spreading on metropolitan areas? So the whole heaven and hell scenario dominates the conversation in many places. And what we do really is to go into these places and tell them, well, you don't have to have one or the other. You can choose what you want the future to look like. And then you start talking to them and they think, well, if we do AVs, we can have road widths that are that are smaller and we can manage the curb space better and we can do all these different innovations. Parking so we, garages. Sure. You won't need as many. We don't need those. Yeah. You, but you can do all that now. You actually <laughs> don't have to wait. And you can almost see the light bulbs going on. And, and really the message is that they are empowered to do things today. They don't have to wait until level five vehicles just land on them from, from outer space. So because we've slowed down, that conversation has changed quite a, just a little bit, but um, I think it's where we are at this point. And when it comes to the vehicles themselves and the technology, you and I were talking just before we began the recording about pressure from the commercial sector, maybe for trucking, uh, where they would not have these uh, hours of service requirements, or maybe people driving, kind of like drones, where you have somebody in a, you know, in a in a office somewhere driving it with right. a toggle switch, versus people like Google Waymo and um, Uber. Uh, or, or even uh, Elon Musk trying to turn, you know, the, the Tesla you just bought into your moneymaker overnight while you're in bed. It's roaming sure. around as a taxi cab versus the public transit side. Talk about that and who's going to come first, do you think, and where, where are we at on all that? Yeah, no, I think you're right that the trucking industry is very interested in this for obvious reasons. Some is it maybe not the trucks that are moving through the city of Chicago, but right. once they get onto I-80 and they're facing a long trip out to the West Coast, there might be some clear applications for where autonomy might result in, in more efficient vehicles, might increase safety, and, and might be better on the drivers and the workers. And the work pe- workforce piece is super important because, as we all know popularly, the trucking industry is facing enormous challenges when it comes to, to workforce. So if there is some place where it might pop first, that seems like there's some clear applications not level five vehicles the way that we're talking about them or they're popularly described, but I think there's some clear applications in trucking. I do think there's also some in in public transit as well, these low speed Mm -hmm. autonomous shuttles that are on predictable routes that are kind of running in in high capacity corridors. Um, It's not clear what it means for things like 
drivers. You know, some of them are going to have to have drivers and like they are in some places. They may change the role of what the drivers are. They may be more of a concierge type service than, you know, than a, the, the public bus drivers we see today. But we do think that there are some, some examples of that. And there's a ton of testing that's going on right now. The team Iardino is working on a report for the Transportation Research Board with a bunch of other partners that's looking at where all these are being tested. And it's quite a few around the country. So uh, I think we'll also see something with transit pretty soon as well. Mm. And what about the cars? I mean, so I was in Vegas six months ago and I went on my Lyft app and it said, would you like an autonomous vehicle to come? I mean, what's going on with the cars? They're happening, but I think slower, just because of the environment in which they operate is so incredibly complex and dynamic, especially within cities, especially where places where you'd be calling up a Lyft or an Uber, that it's going to be a little bit slower. And I don't think that's too insightful. I think the industry is starting to recognize that now. Exactly when is really hard to say, you know, Mm -hmm. 10, 20, 30, 40 years, you know, who knows? Whenever there's a a safety challenge, that's going to set it back a little bit. So they've got to make sure that safety is paramount. If they keep doing that, it might move along faster. And there's a ton of investment that's going into all this. So it's not from lack of trying, but it's just hard to imagine it happening anytime soon, just given how complex we know that these cities and metropolitan areas are. Let's shift slightly the conversation over to microtransit. Uh, and the role of companies like Via and others who are for-profit coming into cities where a public transit agency traditionally has had a monopoly on public mobility. And now it's shifting because of the role of TNCs like Uber and Lyft or microtransit companies or jitneys as we used to call them when I was younger. Uh, What's happening there? What do you see going forward on that? There were a bunch of experiments on microtransit a few years ago, a couple of high-profile ones. And, uh, you know, the good thing about this time in transportation is that there's a lots of tests and pilots and things yes. going on. And some of them are successful and some of them are not. And I think we learned a lot from some of those micro transit pilots. Kansas City, I think, is the most prominent one of how challenging this mm-hmm. can be. So even though they had it, I think, very well thought out, they had everything set up well, maybe they could have done better marketing and there's some things that they could have done. But we learned a lot from that. Um, and I think that private companies have also learned from that and they're starting to go back to the drawing board and figure out, well, what is the market for this? The challenge, I think, for folks in the industry is that we can't expect the private sector to come in and provide these services in lieu of public services. The private sector is in there to make money and there's nothing wrong with that, but that's why they're there, to to generate some kind of profit for them or their shareholders or to get into markets and, and things like that. They're not doing it for the same altruistic reasons that a, that a public company, a public agency might be doing. Yes. So we have to make sure that we understand those public and private roles together when we think about where a microtransit application might be useful. So in Los Angeles, LA Metro is right now trying to figure out, well, is this something that we can figure out ourselves as a public entity? Can we figure out a microtransit application that's dynamic, that's on demand, that has all those features from a private company, but also doing it on the public side while adhering to all the public policy goals we want to achieve. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of thing that's happening now. So these experiments are flourishing, private sector, public sector. We're not going to nail it, I think, anytime soon, not in the next year or two, but I think we are. I think we're going to start to figure out what works, what doesn't work. There's really an insatiable demand for places to learn from one another and to keep on experimenting, especially when federal Washington doesn't seem to be helping them do anything right now. So it's America. Some places are still going to be doing what they're doing, and that's what's going to happen in the next few years, I think. Good segue into what the role of public transit agencies are and how they're evolving. 
So Nat Ford, who was the chair of APTA last sure. year, kind of led us into what he said was the new mobility paradigm. And people have talked about, you know, the role of mobility aggregator being the transit agency. You've got cities like Denver, where our buddy Dave Genova is letting Uber yep. put the mobility as a service app together. Then you got places like Dallas, where they're putting it out themselves, right. uh, or Berlin, places like that. And then you have a third model, which is private companies like WIM in Helsinki or other uh, private software companies, so to speak, putting out apps. Tell us about that ecosphere and where do you think that's headed, et cetera. Yeah, and this gets back to being a dynamic time in transportation, right? So yeah. many interesting things that are happening um, and all of it kind of relate around what the purpose of transportation is in the first place, and that's to provide access, right? It's trying to get people to accessing jobs, economic mobility, economic activity, uh, education, all the things that we travel for. It's not right. just moving people around. Right? That's it good. Sounds, you start with the end in mind, like yeah. like seven uh, habits of highly effective people, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's an obvious yeah. thing. It's not really super insightful, but the shift from mobility to accessibility, I think, mm. is really important because okay. mobility is just moving things around, and we've done that for in traffic engineering for years, and we've made sure that intersections move vehicles through as fast as they can, and that's been the focus okay. in, in many cases. And it really hasn't worked because we still have congestion, we still have all these <laughs> challenges. But when you shift to an accessibility model and you're thinking about, well, how are we trying to get people to do the things they want to do? That changes everything. And transit agencies have a great role to play in that because they obviously have public transit in most cities and metros. And they probably have a great role to play in managing these micro-mobility um, options. The scooters, the bikes, car sharing, everything else. Because people don't seem to really care about the mode they're taking. They're trying to figure out what, how it's, what's going to get me to the thing that I want to do fastest, cheapest, most predictable. There's climate concerns and there's people who have concerns about their footprint, things like that. And there's obviously concerns about costs. But they're, what they're really trying to do is accomplish something. So a transit agency, a metropolitan entity like that, is probably a really good manager for those accessibility slash mobility options. Um, and I love those examples that you that you just mentioned. It's really interesting to see how it plays out because it's a big country, and what's happening in Dallas and and uh, in Denver is different from what's happening in Detroit and in in Philadelphia. So right. there's going to be different flavors around the country, and different agencies have different capacities. I think for being that mobility manager, but I think all that's going to shake out in the next year or two as well. A lot of agencies are looking to the future. I was just out in Vancouver with my buddy Kevin Desmond. Sure. He had a big event over there, you know, Transportation 2050 plan. And it was all about mobility as a service. And it was a room, I'm telling you, Rob, there must have been 400 people yeah. packed in the room. I mean, sure. People are very interested in this, aren't they? Sure. Because it's the next thing, right? I yeah. mean, the, 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 we all know that public transit is facing severe challenges in many places. Huge drops in ridership that don't seem to be just little blips, right? What's the result? What's the cause of that? It's not entirely clear. Some people point to micro-mobility and these new options as being the culprit. Others will point to the growing economy and folks um, buying cars and sprawling metros. All this stuff is still going on at the same time. So instead of trying to answer that question, I think trying to figure out, well, what what are the what does the transit agency of the future look like? How do they adapt? And I just I think it's great what's going on now. And folks like Nat Ford, as you mentioned, are really starting to think very differently about it. Doesn't mean that public transit is going away. We hope shouldn't it shouldn't mean that. There's obviously lots of different roles for public agencies. There's still a public policy reason to run these services. Um, but it's probably not going to look the same as it did 10, 15, 20 years ago. And it probably shouldn't, because transportation is changing. 
You all just recognized Nat, right? Wasn't, didn't he win a big award from you recently? He won our Thought Leader Award at our um, Leadership Development Conference last, um, yeah, last, last summer. It was yeah. tremendous, and there's no better person to receive that award than Nat. Yeah, just shortly after that, he was on a CEO roundtable that I did at UITP in Sweden, and just, he's a phenomenal guy and a real, a real great leader looking forward for our industry. That's great. And he's doing the autonomous thing as well. And an advocate for transit. And I yeah. think that there's a lot of times it's set up as, as animosity. And anything that is not focused on increasing transit ridership is anti-transit. Yeah. And, that's, and that's certainly not true. And somebody like Nat knows that. A lot of people understand that. Yep. You mentioned a moment ago one of the big issues for us in our transit industry is congestion. We know that we're sitting in, what, the second most congested city in America? Or maybe first, here depending on where you're yeah. sure. L.A., Chicago, New York. Yeah. And now places like London have led the way in something called congestion charges. And we know New York State Legislature is now allowing the city of MTA, the New York City MTA, to maybe do congestion charging. And Phil Washington, our buddy in L.A., is talking about it there and now other U.S. cities. Talk to us about what congestion pricing is and how it could apply and maybe reduce congestion and increase funding for public transit. Yeah. The idea of charging drivers for entering the busiest parts of the roadway network isn't a new idea. This has been around since ever there's been transportation economists, right? Um, but London has had this in place um, for a number of years now, as has Stockholm famously, um, both of which started from the notion of reducing greenhouse gases and to putting people on public transit. That's kind of where they, it's a gross exaggeration, but it's, that's kind of where they both started. Um, they've had them in place for a number of years. Both have been tremendously successful. Um, Stockholm, for example, started out with very low um, uh, approval rating from residents. So they did a little bit of a, they did a pilot for a couple of months. They saw that congestion disappeared. They went to referendum and the voters actually voted to keep it in place. And so they've had that in place ever since. Um, I think there's a different style that may be emerging here in the United States, though, because we don't really have the same kind of super dense um, um, urban cores like they do in London and Stockholm. And we don't really have the, uh, the uh, tremendously expansive public transit network like they do in those places, with a couple of exceptions. Obviously, New York, as you mentioned, is a big exception. Um, they have the dense core. They have tremendous congestion. They have the um, robust transit network. So it's it's kind of a no-brainer for New York. You have the bridges. You have the tunnels. And we're really excited for this experiment that they're going to have there. The, the focus there is on plugging the hole in the gap of the MTA. And some people will tell you that it's probably not a good idea to just put congestion pricing in to fix a budget hole. Um, but in this case, it's actually very related. There's a rational nexus between the charge being collected and where the revenue is going, right into the MTA, which is going to provide alternatives to, to using the, the charge. So it actually there makes, makes perfect sense. What they need to watch out for is that they're not going to give away too many exemptions to folks to outer borough commuters, New Jersey right. commuters, you know, whatever it's going to be. So yeah, London had that for a while. There was questions, should they give these exemptions to taxi cabs and maybe even TNCs? Yes, they have, and then they, they've had them on, then they've taken them off. Right. So they've continued to experiment. And in places like that, I think it might be, maybe it's naive to say, easier. If you take, if you have an exemption in New York, it's going to be really hard to imagine putting it back on right. after yeah, a number exactly. of years. So they've got to get that right from the very, from the very, very start. So but, what's the model you think we're going to here in the U.S. that's different? 
Well, there's it's cord, cordon pricing, which is London, Stockholm, New York, uh, uh, Singapore, places like that, where there's an area that's defined and you have to pay to go in and out of the area. Based on your license tag, right? If you don't have an easy pass or whatever, they'll just take a snap a picture of your license tag and send your you. Your license plate, there's there's um, electronic devices, there's right. different models in different places. Okay. But yeah, so basically you, you go through some kind of gantry or some kind of camera takes a picture and you're assessed a fee for the privilege of, of driving at that time. Sometimes they're dynamically priced. The more congestion there is, the higher the charge. All that makes sense to an economist. But what's happening here in the United States, because we don't have that same kind of, of city infrastructure and transit infrastructure, but we are doing a lot of things around tolling and dynamic pricing. The Washington, D.C. area is a great example of one where in Northern Virginia, we have a very expansive network of tolled facilities on major interstates is what they are, but they're dynamically priced by time by um, by real-time conditions. The the bigger the congestion, the more revenue is collected. And on, on Interstate 66, that money goes right back into the corridor. It's paying for a lot of transit and pedestrian infrastructure in that corridor. And the prices can go quite high. Prices I've been on high. it and seen it. Holy cow. Yeah, famously it gets up above $40, but yeah. it's, it's, an, it's an infinitesimal amount of the, the drivers pay that money. And look, if people are willing to do it, it's really a good indication of how expensive it is to drive in a very dense commercial corridor at a, at a busy time of day. Yes, yeah. that's, that's the Some people that's call it price. Lexus lanes, and my thought to that is, okay, meaning that only people that have a lot of money can do it, but they are getting them off the regular lanes. So even if only the Lexus are going over, it's still making the rest of us have a little more lane room to move. <laughs> and it depends on what you do with that revenue. If that revenue is being collected and going into general uh, state coffers right, and being right. spread for for who knows what yeah, else, yeah. that would be untenable. But that money is actually going right back right in, back in to yeah. the corridor to pay for transit investments. So if you're in a transit vehicle, you're not paying the toll at all, right? If right. you're That's right. on a bike adjacent to the corridor, you're not paying the toll at all, but you're benefiting from those who are doing it. So you see something like that happening when with this congestion pricing? Well, it has to happen here because yeah. whereas greenhouse gas reduction, obviously is a very um, prominent issue globally, that was the big driver in Europe. It's not so much of the driver here. Right. Um, it's a piece of it, but it's not the main driver. It's a lot around social equity and making sure that the transportation system, the way it is today, recognizing that it's not really equitable, that we don't really have uh, a system that is fair for everybody across the landscape. But if we do price it correctly, that you can actually can do that, not by assessing fees on just certain people who can afford it, but by taking those revenues and spending it in ways um, that benefit broad swaths of society. We just don't do that right now very well with transport, transportation. But you see this as a trend here in the U.S. that we are going to start seeing maybe some congestion pricing in major cities? Well, it's the issue du jour. I'd right, say that yeah. there's a lot of places that are looking at it that, that may just be kind of sniffing around the edges. But you mentioned three great examples. I mean, New York is doing it. This right. is happening. We right. hope they get it right over the next year and a half. But it's it's going to be in place by 2021 if everything goes well. You mentioned Los Angeles. Phil Washington is firmly committed to it um, for all the reasons we mentioned. He's thinking about it as a way not just to solve congestion in Los Angeles, which is a perennial problem, but to use that revenue to subsidize public transit, which mm -hmm. has, which again, they have big ridership declines over there. So a way to beef that up and to have a symbiotic um, relationship between the tolls collected and the money being being spent. Um, and Chicago is looking at it. Now we're worried that in Chicago, they're talking about it as a way to fix budget problems like Chicago always does. Mm -hmm. But again, if those three places can get it right, you might see it in some kind of North American style in a bunch of other places. 
Let's flip the coin. The other side of that coin would be free transit. So places like Kansas City, Robbie Mackinnon uh, is a good buddy of both of ours, I think, and he is you know, publicly saying, I want to make, he's done little by little, little bits and pieces, right? So first it was free transportation for students and for veterans, and he's getting other groups to help subsidize that. And his goal is to make public transit, you know, it's, it's never free in the sense that it's got to be paid for, but there's no fare to get on the bus. Do you see that happening in other cities? Are you said as a trend? And what do you think of it? I do. I think it's a, it's a slower trend. We, you know, it, we're, I get excited when I see it happening because I think it is a great idea. Yeah. Especially in places that um, where they're facing big declines and there's just an economic and a fiscal issue. If you're, if it's costing you more to collect the tolls, the, the fares and you're bringing in, it yeah. kind of makes a little bit right. of it's a tail wagging the dog. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So it's a bold idea for obvious reasons and there are expenses that go along with it. You've got to beef up security, you've got to beef up enforcement, all kinds of different things. But I think it's a really interesting trend that's that's going across the country. And then tying it back to what you said, if, if, if in Los Angeles, if they can use congestion pricing, a really bold and aggressive public policy to pay for free or reduced cost transit, I think it's tremendous. I'd love to see it happen in more places. Yep. And last question, now flipping to the complete other side, from free to very, very expensive would be our big infrastructure projects. And why in the world does it take us so long in America to build them? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's it's a good question, and we don't know. I know that the narrative is that that's what's happening. Um, there's been famous or high-profile projects in New York and in California that reinforce this narrative that public transit investments in particular cost too much in the United States and take too long to build. That's been the narrative, and everybody keeps saying it. It might be true. We, I mean, there's clearly some examples where we've seen that, but we don't know, right? So we're actually working at Eno right now on a year-and-a-half-long project to try to answer that question. What do we know about transit capital costs over the last 25 years. Let's look at specific projects. Let's look at their complexity or lack thereof. You know, is it is there tunneling? Is it going through greenfield sites? Is this through suburban areas? What are the things that go into the, what would make a transit project expensive? What are the labor environment looks like? Who are the contractors that are working on these projects? And then lay that all out in a database. Now, not naive enough to think that that data is going to show us exactly the answer, but it's going to give us some, it's going to paint some kind of picture. So, we're then going to go around and go to places in Western Europe and the United States and start interviewing folks. And, I'd and encourage you to go to Australia, too. Australia is a great example. Where I was just at, because yeah. these, these guys are, you know, Sydney just opened up a brand new extension of their railway. And I talked to the head of, you know, Howard Collins, the head of Sydney Rail, and also Steve Butcher, the head of John Holland, and other companies that were involved in these big multi-P3 projects where it's design, build, finance, operate, and maintain. They seem to have figured out a, a way to get it done faster and under budget. Yeah. Australia, Canada is another place that keeps yeah, coming up. That's right, yeah. Really innovative new Phil approaches. Phil Furster, our, our mutual friend, is doing projects like that yeah, right yeah. now, yeah. So that's the idea, is to lay out, so what have we learned from these places and what themes can we can we have for, for U.S. cities and metros as they start to look at it? We're not going to be able to probably identify a culprit to this, mm-hmm. and I think the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, tried to do this earlier this summer. Mm. They embarked on a long project, and at the end of it, the GAO, surprisingly for them, said, we don't know. That was the answer. <laughs> so we're probably not going to be able to identify with pinpoint accuracy exactly what it is. But by painting these bigger pictures, here are some key themes around labor, some key things around contracting, key themes around project delivery. All these things might add up to something that could inform the federal legislation next year. That'd be great. And that could help our transit agencies across America 
get things done within not spanning multiple administrations where a new person gets elected and has different priorities and projects get abandoned or partially abandoned halfway through. Yeah, the political environment here in the United States versus other places is something we want to explore as well. It's a very different commitment to transit in other countries that we sometimes lack in the United States. Yeah. Well, I know that you guys here at the Eno Center for Transportation are focused on helping us navigate that. I thank you for taking the time today to help us. One more time, if people want to find out more about the Eno Center for Transportation, where do they go? You can go to our website at www.enotrans.org. It's the best way to contact us. You can sign up for our newsletter and on social media as well. Very good. Robert Puentes, president and CEO of Eno. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today on transit trends and where we're going for the future. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Transit Unplugged, powered by Trapeze Group. To stay up to date, subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, or join the conversation at transitunplugged.com. Thanks for listening.